in Romans 2, 4, and 5 with a particular emphasis uh, in Romans 2, 5, which is why I'd love John David to just stay and, you know, shepherd uh, the, the lesson along. But, but as you well know, uh, Romans 2, 5 comes on the heel of this, this beautiful passage um, that really speaks to What, what I think is, it, it, it's been the most uh, important but yet subtle takeaway. And I think it's beautifully expressed by these old timey saints from long ago who just mined so much out of the scriptures. But I, I think, um, as we'll see this morning as we unpack this study, that I'd like to give you an entirely different way of thinking about the wrath of God we see all around us. I think we have to see the wrath of God very differently as sinners saved by the grace of God. And I think you have to invoke both of those things together to really understand that the wrath of God that we see all around us, this temporal wrath of God, right? And I'll say temporal and mention the thief on the cross because up to the very moment of that man's death, he was under the temporal wrath of God. And in an instant, he was snapped out of that temporal wrath of God and avoided the eternal wrath of God. And there lies what I think has been so subtle for me, is this temporal wrath of God, no matter how severe it may be upon a person, allows you to go to Romans 2.4 and say, do you not understand that it is meant to lead you to repentance. It's crushing you. I mean, how many people in this room have people in their lives where the wrath of God is absolutely crushing them? Crushing them. They are living horrendous lives and enduring horrendous consequence. And every bit of that wrath is meant to lead that person to repentance. Keep that in mind as we walk through this study, because I think the danger of not seeing it that way uh, invokes the God and particularly the Father that I grew up with in Roman Catholicism, which was the Father who just kept you under his wrathful thumb. And if you weren't a good person, you, you were just, right? And even Jesus, and quite honestly in that system, that's why they run to Mary, quite honestly. that She will mediate for those bad guys, right? Right, so maybe that's why it, it has had such a, an effect on my thinking. 
to just understand that this wrath we see all around us, as long as that person, person is breathing life, is under the temporal wrath of God. but under the severe danger of ending up in the eternal wrath of God. So let's pray, and we'll get into our study of Romans 2.5 a little bit this morning. Father, we, we just want to settle our hearts and just be humbled by your truth, your kindness and forbearance and patience. just the ministry that those beautiful attributes that you show us in so many ways should have in our life, in our own souls and in the souls of those around us, the hearts and minds. And Lord, as we observe this unfolding wrath all around us, and at times how vivid it is as you study scripture carefully all around us. I just pray that we would have a calm and steadied trust that your word will never return void. For some, it is an aroma, a sweet aroma unto life, and praise be to you for that. And for some, it is a horrendous aroma of death. And we can praise you for that too, Lord, for you are righteous and just in bringing every one of us to that choice to either seek after the God who is the creator or to deny it and reject it and make ourselves to be that God. So we pray, Lord, that you would just fill our hearts and minds with the truths of this study and just move us along to be faithful saints in this ministry of discipleship you have commanded us to go forth with. And Father, we pray these things in the blessed name of your beloved Son, our Lord and our Savior, and our soon coming King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we, we, we've talked about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, and you can't lose sight of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. It is one of those passages in its entirety that allow us to just have this overwhelming thankfulness that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dominated by Satan, and we were destined for the wrath of God, literally destined for the wrath of God. And then you have that beautiful but God being rich in mercy. There it is right there. Paul could not get this out of his heart and his mind and his pen enough, could he? And if you think about it, think about what, what Saul was doing when the Lord showed him that mercy. He was going to kill as many Christians as he could, put him in prison, rip them apart from their families. And in that very wrath of man, which is born out of the wrath of God upon us, 
the Lord showed him his mercy, right? By knocking him off his high horse, blinding his eyes, and putting him in a place for three days where he could not eat, sleep, drink, until the Lord saved him, right? Three days. So it seems so fitting that the Lord saved Saul so that we could have Paul just pouring out of the experience of his life um, what the Lord had done to him. But Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous, don't lose sight of that word, judgment will be revealed. His judgment now and then will be perfectly righteous, right? And I think nothing summarizes this Romans 2, 4, and 5 and expands it. And this is another good picture of how Paul writes this book. Um, then the, the passage we've, we've touched on a few times, but I want to read it again for you if you've got, if you want to run around with me in the scriptures. We're in Rome, going to go to Romans 9, 22 through 24. This is such a helpful passage. Number one, because it really forces us up out of a very man-centered way of thinking about God and all the little ways that we would like God to be. And it lifts God way up above all of that. And it puts him in a place where we can't even begin to comprehend unless we just recognize that he is full of grace and mercy. But he is every bit as righteous and just. Those two things are not incompatible. They are all the attributes of God. And this passage reveals a mystery that we can't comprehend. But God exercises all the time and is very often attacked for it, quite frankly. Romans 9.22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So you, you can ask, again, why does he endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? So what did the garden commandment say? If you eat you will die. The wages of sin is death. And the fact that we are living to the very day we're living is this uncomprehendable grace and mercy. That is a gift from God. That the wretched can live out their life and have the joys that go with even the wretched life 
that the believer, every day of that is a gift from God. And, and we, we, we are always asking God, why not more when we don't deserve a single day we've had, right? And I think that's part of the mindset that Paul has in this passage. Why has he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Because Paul knew Saul did not deserve the day he got knocked off that high horse. And he most certainly didn't deserve to be put in a place where the Lord would send him to the Gentile world that his religious Hebrew background thought was utterly unclean. How great is our God and how Creatively, he seems to set us into our ministries, right? For some, it's a ministry of suffering and just walking through that with such faithfulness to the Lord. For some, it, it's, right? I mean, look at the different ministries we've been given in this room. That is this, this creative mercy of God. And this is what Paul just couldn't get over. And the backdrop for this is you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed because he was so rich and so kind and so forbearing and so patient with you. I want to give you Dr. MacArthur's um, kind of commentary from his study Bible on 2 Peter 3.10 and the day of the Lord. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read his notes. I think it was very helpful. He says of the day of the Lord, see, uh, uh, the, the day of the Lord is a technical term pointing to, a to the special interventions of God in human history for judgment. It ultimately refers to a future time of judgment whereby God judges the wicked on earth and ends this world system in its present form. And boy, some days you just wonder how long, or oh Lord, is this really going to take? Because there's days it sure seems to be pressing in, doesn't it? The Old Testament prophets saw the final day of the Lord as unequal darkness and damnation, a day when the Lord would act in a climactic way to vindicate his name, destroy his enemies, and reveal his glory, establish his kingdom, and destroy the world. And there's just a host of passages, some of which we'll touch on this morning, so we get a full picture of this day of wrath. It occurs at a time of the tribulation on earth. And interestingly, and again... A thousand years later, at the end of the millennial reign. You remember what Peter said in this particular section of Scripture? 
a thousand years is if a day. And what God is revealing to us when it talks about the day of judgment, it's, it is in its two most pronounced forms at the end of the tribulation period and the end of the millennial reign, a thousand years in between. And what you find that one needs to study carefully when you run across these passages of the day of the Lord is the day of the Lord is a, is a expanse of time that has reverberations flowing through it. Because most of your day of the Lord references in the Old Testament are speaking of the eminent judgment on Israel. And in the same context, it is speaking of the judgment at the end of the tribulation period or it is speaking or and it is speaking of the white throne judgment it will it will speak to those in the same context and and just reverberate right you've got an eminent a far and then a very far prophecy sitting right there and the old testament scriptures do that a lot as we'll see this morning we'll see that uh as we get towards the end of the New Testament passages as well. So I want to just take you into some of the Old Testament passages. One of them is, is Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3. And I want to just let these passages kind of, um, kind of just fall on you. In Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. And that was like right in their face at that time. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, that perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And there you see that it is a continuing progression of the temporal wrath of God and that far prophetic wrath of God that will come on those days of judgment, right? Another one, Isaiah 2:10. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the tear of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Listen to the attributes of the, the, the man that is being spoken of here. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. Those that see themselves more than above looking down upon all those little people, right? A haughty man. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And here it comes. 
and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, right? This is, this is what it should invoke you to think about the second Adam. The first Adam was given all of the responsibilities that the second Adam was given. The first Adam and every one of his progeny have failed miserably. And the second Adam has perfectly obeyed the commandments of the Father. That's this beautiful second Adam that we read about, particularly from Paul. He understood this so, so very well. Daniel gets into this very precisely as David has so faithfully taught us over the years. But Daniel 7, 9 through 10, gives us a very interesting sequence in reverse, actually. Daniel 7, 9, 10, as you look at this, will hearken us out to Revelation 20 very quickly. Verse 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, love that title, took his seat. Because who can rightly judge the entirety of humanity but the one who created it and the one who recorded every single word and deed and thought about every one of those human beings? Here he is, the Ancient of Days. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Tell me that wouldn't be rather His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And this is really where it, a thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. So it kind of implies a couple of different groups of constituencies, those that are serving him and those that are standing before him. And then look what it says. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Right? Now, I know so many, I have read so many commentaries that like to just untether this and make it some kind of woo, right? It is far from that. It is far from that, right? As we'll, we'll see. As you'll see when we get out to Revelation 20, this is Daniel's expression of what John was given regarding the white throne judgment. But we also have Daniel 12, 1 through 3, which is actually a period that is at the climax of the Great Tribulation period. So here you see both of these defined points of God's judgment 
most defined points of God's judgment, right? They're, they're kind of like fence posts of the overall time of judgment at the end of the tribulation period and then the end of the millennial reign. And you just heard the one from the end of the millennial reign. Now Daniel is backing up into the period of the tribulation when he says Daniel 12, 1 through 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. What a comforting thought that is. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. One of the books, okay? And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And there is a wonderful, wonderful encouragement to just go make disciples, right? Right out of Daniel. One more, and then we'll shift over to the New Testament. Back to Zephaniah 1.7. Be silent before the Lord God. So this is all the way back, right? And the Spirit of God says, for the day of the Lord is near, right? Because in a very real sense, wherever we stand in that white throne judgment at the end of humanity, it is set the very day we die. It is set the very day we die. And I just love the second half of this passage. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to share it with you. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Himself. So that you and that life that you shared last week could be declared righteous. Not because of anything you did or didn't do in that life, but because you simply, like a child, trusted and believed what he said he was, who he was, and what he had done on your behalf. <laughs> right? For every one of us that know the Lord, that's our testimony. He did it. So this Lord who has prepared the sacrifice in John 5.21 now begins about a four-month intense battle with the Pharisees. And it begins to get unpacked in John 5.21. Where Jesus identifies himself with the Father in a way that has set their hearts 
to murder him. They just didn't know how they could get away with it with his popularity, right? John 5.21, very, very important exchange. And I want you to see how this day of the Lord is unpacked by our Lord. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Okay, so what's he hearkening you to? That day of the resurrection, that day of the Lord that these Old Testament people understood very well. The Father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the Son gives life to whom he will. And right there, he's identifying himself with that sovereign work of God who will declare the sheep from the goats and then ultimately the saved from the unsaved, right? For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. There's the second Adam to be exalted. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in everything he does right now has one expressed purpose. And that is to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ. Either in his judgment, in his wrath, or in the beautiful conforming work that he does in the hearts and minds of the saints. All of it is to his glory, right? And Jesus just unpacks that here. Just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, there it is, but has passed from death to life. And Jesus, about four months later in John 8, 31, will say after he literally is as John captures it, John 8.30, those that have believed in him, Jesus said, but if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. What does that mean for our ministries? We have no idea we have no idea when we encounter, as Isaiah would say in that beautiful book, The Bruised Reed and The Smoldering Wick, if that little ember that still is in the wick of that candle isn't a little ember that God put there for us to come along, and cultivate that flame. But the entire life around that little ember, that wick, is a wicked, defiled, sinful, broken, buried human being. Just like us, right? You get the picture? That's why the Great Commission is to go make uh, believers, don't confuse your work with God's work. God makes believers. He gives the increase. We sow seeds and we pray 
and we disciple and we walk and we do it in kindness, forbearance, and patience if we're going to do it like our Lord. And I, I just go right to Romans 2 and say guilty, right? So many times guilty in this transactional society that says, why would I disciple somebody like that when Jesus went to the woman at the well? Right? That's the point. And I, this, is, this, is, this is for us, not at you. I promise you that. I want to give you a little bit of a picture, though, of this coming wrath and how this unfolds in its first kind of fence post in the great tribulation period. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians 2. And I think we've got time. I'm just going to read all the way through verse um, 12. And we're just going to pick out a few things, but I want you to be thinking about this period of God's temporal wrath that leads to these climactic points of wrath at the end of the tribulation period and the end of the millennial reign, right? This is mostly pointing us to the tribulation period. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, because that was the eminent interest and concern of everybody in his day. Remember how many times the apostles said, what about the kingdom? What about the kingdom? What about the kingdom? Right up to the very end, what about the kingdom? And then when Jesus rose from the dead and stayed how many days? Forty? Have you ever paid attention to what he was teaching? The kingdom of God. Forty days. Talk about an intensive on what's to come. He spent the last 40 days in his resurrected state teaching about the kingdom. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that class, Grady? <sighs> Paul had his own personal class in the desert with the Lord. We know that from Scripture. And then he had what appears to be another 11 years to just absorb this before he really began his ministry. I don't think we realize that with that kind of discipleship, it took the Apostle Paul 14 years to become visible in his ministry. What does that tell us about our preparation for ministry and our diligence, right? Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, so there's the rapture he's talking about. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, so there's your problem, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They thought they missed it. So what in the world were they thinking the day of the Lord was? I mean, let, let's just put it in a rhetorical sense. How in the world could you miss the day of the Lord when it is described the way it's described? Doesn't that give you a little bit of insight into how even back then loose and fast we can be with the Scriptures? Because I don't think there's a passage about the day of the Lord that shouldn't send us to run for the rocks and hide. Seriously. And here they thought they missed it, right? Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. And this is what I want us to hear because we're headed into this, right? It may not be in our lifetime, but it may very well be in our lifetime, right? 
That day will not come unless the rebellion. David used to talk about this is the apostasia. This is the visible church that has no shred of truth in it whatsoever anymore. Or worse, it may have just enough truth to cover up all the lies. But the basis of the apostasia is at its most defined point is to no longer hold what was once held tightly, the Word of God. There will be no place for the Word of God in the apostate church more and more as we head towards this day. Now keep that in mind when you look around the churches and how hard it is to find, right, a faithful church one that is truly committed to the Word of God as the literal breath of God to us. Unless this rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself, so there's that haughty pride attribute. That's why John says there are many antichrists, right? Criteria, haughty, prideful, places themselves above everybody. It's Satan and Isaiah 14. I will, I will, I will ascend. I will sit in the seat, right? I think we have a world full of those folks who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he, and he is very supreme in this sense, takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And we've seen the reverberations of that through time, through Antiochus Epiphanes and others. Do not remember, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And, you know, the comedian or the sheep owner may go, you silly sheep, (laughs) right? How many times do I have to tell you? You should have sheep, you would know. (laughs) Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him. This is fearful to me when it's rightly understood. Now, so that he may be revealed in his time. You know what is now restraining him. What holds the restraints on society today? God does, Judy. The Spirit of God, through the law of God, through the Word of God through the institution of the law, which we are trying to unfund right now. Take heed of these things. And this is not something that God is not in control of. Humanity says, go away, God. And in God's wondrous righteousness, simply says, okay. And he reveals what is in the heart of man. And it will be the most vile thing you'll ever know until one gets to hell. Because hell is where every vile heart has no restraint. And that's what you see here unpacking. This is, even this is the mercy of God because this is foreshadowing hell in its most horrid clarity. You know what is restraining him now so that 
he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only who, here he comes, only he who now restrains it, the Holy Spirit, will do so until he has been taken out of the way. The divine decree that says, okay. The restraint of the Holy Spirit, the church, the truth rightly divided have all been taken away. And yet, we know that during this tribulation period, according to that altar in heaven, so many come to salvation at this point in time, right? And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing the appearance by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception. So there's a picture of what's coming. We should be very discerning of that. Those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. Notice the love the truth, right? Because a lot of people have the truth. And they would be just fine throwing it in the same bag with all their other used up stuff. Remember the other passage Paul gave? Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because they found Jesus, or they found this, or they found that, and it was good for a while, and then they just went right on past it looking for the next thing. Right? And the writer of Hebrews says they can't come back because it would be to crucify and trample on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ again. That's how serious it is. For those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And there, there is the window slamming shut, the door slamming shut. There is what produces the people in the tribulation period who cannot deny that it's God. They know it's God, but would rather shake their fist at him and say, fall on me the rocks because this window has been closed. And we don't think about God like that enough, do we? We kind of act like God is this puppy dog who just wants to save anybody and everybody, right? He loves. He has expressed that. But there is a point at which that window closes, and it is this day of the Lord. And I, if there's one thing I hope to convey from my heart, this is very serious. This is very serious for every one of us who know the Lord and know even one soul who doesn't know the Lord. Do they know these truths? Have they been taught and had them expressed from a heart that literally shakes for their soul? Nobody taught on hell more than Jesus because they had such a distorted view of hell. 
I would offer we better be careful not to have a distorted view of hell. Right? Because the warnings of Scripture are so strong. Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, says the Lord. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Matthew 12, 36 now. I tell you, and here it comes, on the day of judgment, people will give account. And boy, I tell you, if this doesn't strike fear into our daily lives, I just don't know what will. Because I think you have to ask the question before you read this next part of this passage. Does the church just get a pass on this? I don't think so either, Grady. People will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Hold that thought in your mind as I read this from Peter at 2 Peter 2, 1 through 11. Because Peter's giving this the, the soil that makes for this day that builds to this day of the Lord and this judgment. Look at how much Peter pulls into this passage. So first thing we see is, but false prophets also arose among the people. So there's your first marker. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly destructive. It slips in very subtle, and starts to, like leaven, just flow all the way through the body until the body is sick and is so confused over the truth of the Word of God they can't even make sense of it all, and they just pay attention to whoever is in the pulpit. Right? Even denying the master who bought them. No shortage of ink spilled on that passage bringing upon themselves swift destruction, which tell you they were never saved to begin with. And many will fight many fearful, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. There it is. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Boy, don't have to look far to see those ministries, do you? This prosperity gospel. Rampant. And their greed will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
For if God did not, and then he goes into a whole series of Old Testament examples to show how God judges over time. Sodom and Gomorrah, right on through. And then just go to verse 9. And then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge, and here is the, especially, so there's an amplification of the judgment that's coming on those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion, go right to Romans 18 through 31, and despise authority, lawlessness, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, the saints, the persecution of the church, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And then skip down to Second Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. There it is. And a thousand years is one day. Just like that between those two points of judgment. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Who's the you? The beloved. Boy, right on the money, right? Because when you disconnect that you from the beloved, you are in danger of all of a sudden becoming a universalist very quickly, right? It is the beloved. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's Romans 2, 4. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the, earthly, uh, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, which ushers us right into this new heavens and new earth, right? And just in the interest of kind of buttoning this up, let, let's just hold the next couple of passages for the week after next. And we'll wrap up this section and the wrath of God and the implications. And then we're going to go into the rest of really Romans 2 and 3a, where Paul comes back with the law, both written and on our heart, as the means by which the prosecution of all humanity takes place. And we'll be able to move through that with a little bit more pace, I think, once we get through Romans 2.5. Okay? So we'll come back in two weeks and refresh our minds here. And then we'll start moving on. Okay? Thank you, guys. You're welcome.